I want you to know, Church of the Red Door, I'm very, very excited today. I'm always excited. You guys are like, you guys, you're always excited up there. So uh, I was having uh, lunch or breakfast with my friend Craig Bryant. Craig, where are you? Where are you? Is he, has he shown up? Craig's here? Is Craig here? Craig Bryant's not here. Oh, this is perfect. <laughs> now, now I can really get him. So I can tell the full truth. Nothing but the truth. So anyway. We were we were having uh, lunch or breakfast the other day, and uh, and this is this describes uh, me most of the time, but not today. He said, you know, I, sometimes I go to bed at night and I feel so good. I just feel so vibrant and healthy, and and I wake up in the morning and somehow I've injured myself while I'm sleeping. <laughs> so I so I woke up this morning and I was injury free. So anyway, let's uh, let's get it going here. Uh, let's pray, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this morning. We we really have no ability to search the depths of your word, which we do every Sunday, without the the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, part of the triune Godhead. Lord, uh, you are the word, John 1, 1, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And so we we could really see the very meaning and the the very essence of the word as we saw your life lived out. Uh, And now for us, obviously not in the physical, but for those who were there that 33 years you lived on the planet, the incarnation. And so, Lord, uh, they could see you and listen to you many uh, and were changed by that. But we, we are changed still by you and your word through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we come to you today just asking that you would do a great work in our hearts. Lord, everybody's going to hear something different this morning, myself included. The Spirit has an amazing way to do that. But would you speak to us? We believe in a supernatural God who speaks to his sheep. You said it yourself, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So help us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're, we're our, third, our third week into this very short moment that I call the most ridiculous story I've ever heard. We are in Luke chapter 20. And why it was, was it ridiculous? Well, let's reread it again. We'll start here and then we'll, we went into some claims for Jesus' authority and then we're going to go into a little proof. Um, who did Jesus think he was? I mean, what kind of authority? And that's what happened. Luke chapter 20, verse 1. It says, On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him, and they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? And then Jesus answers, and you can read the rest. But that's where we've been. He was challenged Jesus was challenged, what authority do you think you have coming in here? I mean, this is our domain. What authority do you think you have? And then we went in uh, last week and looked at many of the claims that not only Peter had made, the Apostle Paul, but Jesus himself for his own authority. And then, of course, the question has to be asked, what proof do we have in any way that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was and had the authority to go right into the temple and to begin to preach? Last week, we looked at the first one, Uh, And that was essentially his healing miracles were attesting to the fact that he was something other than anything that they had known before. And I took you all the way back into his recounting of John the Baptist in Matthew 11, John the Baptist's midlife crisis, and Jesus simply quotes um, when John questioned whether he was the expected one because he expected Jesus to take over, take charge, to put the Romans down, to set up this eternal kingdom, this forever kingdom. And, uh, and he didn't, and he didn't understand why that was. And so Jesus' response to him was the response that we should have as well. What gave Jesus the authority? Well, we should understand that the word had spoken that he would have that authority. And so he quotes, he goes back and quotes Isaiah chapter 35. We're going to touch back on that a little bit this morning. But anyway, it was essentially that, and again, let me read for you. Uh, God's going to come, first of all, and then the scorched land and the thirsty ground is going to be Uh, taken over with water and things like that. But the eyes of the blind will be open, and we've seen that. In fact, right after this uh, situation we'll look at in Matthew 8, he's going to go and cross cross back over the sea in Matthew 8, and he's going to heal Jairus' daughter. And it was just a normal thing that he did. He was healing many. And we we get get some insight into the personal encounters, but he, the vast majority of people he healed, we don't have any detail on it other than he healed everybody that they brought to him at various points. 
The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. So Isaiah was looking into the future, seeing this expected one, and it was in the context of doing some supernatural, wild, crazy, off the charts. We haven't seen anything like that before kind of stuff. And if it wouldn't have been, then Jesus would have told us not to believe in him. And let me say that again, because that sounds odd to your ears. And John chapter 10 says, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe in me. Did you, did you know you have an out? If Jesus wasn't the fulfillment of everything that the prophets had been seeing for hundreds and hundreds of years, you have a way out. If Jesus didn't walk in, if he was not part of the tribe of Judah, if he was not born in Bethlehem, all, there's over 300 places specifically, but now to the nuanced things of the... The, the, those things that would describe the expected one, the one who would, well, have supernatural powers and exhibit them. So that's what we looked at this week, last week. Now we're going to look at the second thing, second proof for Jesus' authority. Who did he think he was? Well, he knew exactly who he was, and he had every right to be preaching and teaching in and around the temple. Well, how do, what was the second place of authority? I'll tell you this. It was the demonic realm recognized exactly who he was. You know, James was very clear when James said, look, demons believe and they shudder to think about. Now, it's New Testament. Uh, the half-brother of Jesus said that demons, they, they believe too. And they, they, they know who he is. They understand his authority. And they tremble. They freak out in the presence of Jesus. They know exactly who he is. This is an encounter, a strange encounter that we're going to look at that proved that Jesus had authority not only in the seen realm, but in, even more importantly in the unseen realm. Not only did he have power over disease, illness, all the things that we've seen in the first proof, but now the demonic realm is terrified when they get in his presence and they call out exactly who they're dealing with. Matthew chapter 8, uh, this, this encounter uh, is chronicled by all three synoptic gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all refer back to this. Now, just need to set you aside here a little bit for a second. Uh, two of the accounts, uh, both Mark and Luke's account, only refer to one person. Uh, but here we have this two men. And this is the same question we get all the time. You say, wait a minute. You've got synoptic gospel problems because you have two men that are demoniacs. The other account just say there was one guy. And they have the same problem with the angels in the tomb. They come back and find, was it one man, angel in the tomb there, or was it two? And this, is just, this should actually encourage you to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture because if you get eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts, you're naturally going to have, they're not going to fill in every detail. They're going to they're they're talk about it as they saw it. Let me give you an example. So let's say I was out here this morning and uh, I was talking to a couple of guys, talking to Rich, and I was maybe talking to Bob Newby, and, and I was just having this conversation. And then I said, okay, I need to write that down. And so I was having a conversation with Bob Newby. And I just said I was going to have a conversation with Bob Newby. And then another time I'm telling a story, and I'm sitting there and Rich and Bob were there and we were talking. And now which one of those? Well, you say, well, you can't trust that anymore. Well, why can't you trust that? That's ridiculous. Sometimes you're going to include everybody. Sometimes you may just include one person you have a conversation with in the context of multiple. Uh, there are many different times that true eyewitness accounts will not give you every detail. They'll give you the pertinent information. The point is not, is there one demoniac or two demoniacs, one angel or two angels? The point is, Jesus came up out of the grave and this demoniac who had thousands, was possessed by thousands of spirits, uh, was free was free. That's the point of the story. Just a sidebar note in case you're wondering. So this, this is accounted for in Mark chapter 5. It's accounted for in Luke chapter 8 and in Matthew chapter 8. And so we're going to read the Matthew account. It talks about two demoniacs, two demoniacs. Okay, verse 28, Matthew 8, 28. Here we go. You ready? Come on now. Church the Red Door, are you ready for this? This is good stuff. It's kind of freaky stuff, but it's good stuff. It's good stuff. When he came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes. Some of your uh, Bibles may say uh, Gerizines. Or, uh, this was part of the Gentile part. is on the uh, other side, the east side of the Galilee. If you've ever been there, if you've taken a trip to Israel. In fact, much of the stuff is still standing there. It was part of the ten cities called the Decapolis. 
and there's still some standing structures all the way from 2,000 years ago. It's pretty, pretty profound, but it was known to be a Gentile area. This is a place where Jesus is interested in going to, even though his primary task was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's very clear about that, Matthew 15. But here we come back and we see him going to the other side, knowing he's going to encounter a bunch of Gentiles. And here's the story. So he goes to the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed, met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so, now catch this, because I'm going I'm to talk about this a little bit. They were extremely violent, <clears throat> extremely violent. In fact, no one could even pass by that way. And they cried out saying, okay, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Now, is this the demoniac speaking? It's his vocal cords, but it is the spirit in him that is speaking and corrupting and twisting and, and marring. You know, one of the things that Satan, our adversary, does, the uh, Bible's clear. Look, if you have a problem with a demonic realm, if you have a problem with a spiritual realm, the whole Bible won't make sense to you. you just, if you're just looking for the Bible as kind of a moral roadmap, for your life, to help you through life, the Bible will simply not make any sense. The meta-nerve of Scripture demands that we understand that there is a supernatural unseen realm. It's clear. Uh, you, don't have an, you don't have an expression or an understanding of evil. You don't even understand the story for which Jesus was sent. You know, Colossians says, at the cross, Jesus disarmed these spiritual forces. They were disarmed at the cross. Uh, Jesus talked about it. He cast the demonic out. You just, if you do away with the unseen realm, you do away with pretty much the whole Bible. You're left with a few moral things, and now you really have any, you have just any other religion that's trying to morally climb their way, like at the Tower of Babel, back up to God. This is about an epic battle between good and evil. These are created beings. They're spiritual forces. If you read Revelation 12 this way, you'll understand that maybe a third or so of the angelic realm fell in the very the, the, the ridiculous conspiracy to somehow these created beings are going to rise up and be like God. Well, their, their task is simple. They understand that you, as a human being, whether you're an atheist, whether you're the most immoral person on the planet, you were still created imago Dei. You were created in His image and Satan loves to come in and twist that and make you deformed into, well, a vicious beast, if you will. Peter talks about that. People become instinct-driven. Instinct they really become like animals. They're driven by their passions, sex and food and, and glory and all that kind of and, and hierarchy, and they're just driven by those things. Satan loves to come in and twist and mar the image of God that you are called to reflect the glory of God, Satan would love for man to reflect his, well, it's not glory, his infamy. They would love, Satan loves to possess, it doesn't have to always be possession, literal demon possession. I found in my own experience of the last 30 years, I have encountered it on numerous occasions. I have encountered demonic possession, but it is a rare thing to have actually manifest and have something what I would call demonic possession. Now, persuaded by the spiritual realm, lost, living in darkness, a lot of that occurs. It's more of a rare thing. It's not something I concentrate on. People can get way off track thinking way too much about the demonic realm. I don't even, I don't, I, I'm aware of it. Paul says we shouldn't be ignorant of Satan's schemes. Uh, I'm aware of what the manifestations of Satan's activities are but I'm not going to focus on him. I'm going to focus on the creator. I'm going to set my mind on things above. I'm going to set my mind on the sovereignty and the glory and the beauty of, of Jesus, and I'm going to follow him, and he'll lead me through all the landmines that would be, well, would be this satanic realm, okay? But they were extremely violent. No one could pass by. As they were crying out, Son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? Uh, the demonic realm is aware that there is a countdown on their existence and they will be uh, put in a place that will not be pleasant. Their, their lives are already uh, marred by uh, the horror show that is their own rebellion. We have no place in Scripture where we get ransom and redemption that we read about last week in Isaiah 35. We get no ransom and redemption 
seemingly possible for the created order that is the angelic realm. We just don't understand. We don't get any of that. There's no hope for them, but they're hoping at least in on these last years that they are allowed to roam the earth in some way and potentially possess those who have no protection from the creator, uh, that they would love to mar the image of God. And, 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 it's, and it, it's a way of hurling accusations against their own creator. And they realize that their time is short. Verse 30 says, Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat, because they were asking him, If you're going to cast us out, send us into that herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went into the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, this is so weird, they implored him to help them. Now they implored him to leave their region. What was happening? They knew they were in the presence of authority. And they were terrified by it. You know, we're, we're sometimes terrified by authority. We really are. It seems odd to us. I think uh, some speculate, and I think there's probably truth to this. I mean, this was a big deal. They, uh, some of the accounts in the other Gospels talk about 2,000 pigs, you know. I mean, that's a lot of that. You know what I mean? That's a lot of that. 2,000, that would be a huge amount of money lost by this small agrarian Gentile culture, that'd be a lot of money out the window. And yet, here, here are two demoniacs that, if you read some of the other accounts, they looked like animals. They were howling in the mountains, it said. The Bible talks about them going up into the mountains and howling like animals. It talks about them not having been dressed for years. They hadn't even worn any clothes. Sounds like an animal. Well, maybe not in Palm Springs, because I see how you dress up your dogs and things. But uh, you know what I'm saying. They, they weren't wearing any clothes. They, they, they were living among the tombs, and they were extremely, extremely violent. Now, what do we do with that? And, and by the way, it says that they didn't live, hadn't lived in a house. They hadn't been housed in a long time. They would chain them up, some of the other accounts said, and they would break free from the chains. They, they were tormenting the people living among the tombs, howling up in the mountains that just sound like beasts. Now, if you'll remember this, now think back to what we talked about last week. One of the things we saw in the context of the proof for Jesus and his claims, his ability to, for deaf people to hear and for the lame to leap up like deer, I mean, part of that in the context is that God was coming, God was going to do this, and then if you'll remember last week, verse 9 of Isaiah 35 said, No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. What Jesus is doing, whether you're aware of it or not, I talked to you a little bit last week about the sea of perceived autonomy, that little picture that I had in my mind. And we're trying to call people out of that sea and into the high, onto the highway of holiness. And it talked, it used that language, that metaphorical language. We're, we're inviting people to come up onto the highway of holiness where no vicious beast will be, where the ransomed and the redeemed will walk. What Jesus was doing, whether you're aware of it or not, is it was also part of the miraculous, was that he had utter authority over the demonic realm, the fallen demonic realm. He was part of the created order. He was part of the one who created in the first place. All things have been created by him and for him and through him, according to Paul in Colossians 1. Now they're literally barking back. How's he going to call the, these two demoniacs onto the road? Well, first he's got to dispossess them of the demonic realm. The other accounts talk about Jesus asked them to speak in both the Matthew and Mark account and asked them to speak and said, who are you? And, and it says legion. And legion, some people say, well, there's 6,000 spirits. A Roman legion could be up to 6,000. It really just, what he's saying is there were many of us is really what that means. Thousands of spiritual forces within these men. 
and then they were cast out, and then they asked, why did they ask to go into the swine? Well, they, they didn't want to go into the abyss. They didn't want to go back into the waters of cat. Now, what happened is that they entered these unclean animals, and that, that, that doesn't get by me as well. That was one of the unclean animals for a, from a Jewish perspective, a diet, according to the dietary laws. But then they rushed down the slope, and they all drowned. So they were still uh, out of a body. They, they don't want to be in the abyss. They want to cause as much chaos as possible. It's the only place where I've ever seen in Scripture that an animal is possessed in some way uh, that I know of uh, in a spiritual sense. It's usually human beings. But in this case, they just didn't. They wanted in on the action to cause as much chaos as they possibly could. And the very thing that they had wanted... They lost. So maybe there were at least 2,000 spirits because 2,000 of those were gone. I mean, gone and drowned. And that freaked people out. And it should have. But then they had to start thinking, is this going to cost us our livelihood? And this, Look, one of the things that we learn from this, or at least I do, is that there are a lot of people that are like, I like the Jesus thing. And then all of a sudden you're confronted with his authority in your life. And you're like, ah, I'm not so well, I'm not so sure I'm going to go down that road. I mean, I'd like to be saved and everything, but in terms of bowing to the sovereignty of King Jesus and allowing him to run my life, which is what a disciple and a follower of Jesus actually does, I don't know about that. I'd prefer that he leave my region. I still go to church maybe every once in a while, throw a few bucks in, but I, in terms of Jesus running my life, I don't know about that. Woo! But you know, the one that had actually been saved knew his plight. It was easy for him to know his plight. At least one of them said, may I go with you in the other accounts. I, want, I just want to be with you. I just want to be near you. Someone who's been truly saved just wants to be near Jesus. If you struggle to even want to be near Jesus, you might want to go back to the beginning and go, do I even really understand the gospel? Do I really understand what Jesus has done in my heart? Do I really understand the fullness of what's taken place in me? Because I just want to be near Him. If you struggle to worship and all those kinds of things, look, I'm not talking about being a baby Christian. I'm just talking about over a long period of time and you just don't think of yourself as a worshiper, someone who really bows to the sovereignty of Jesus. You might want to go back to the beginnings. Just make sure that our foundation is solid, that you understand what He did for you on the cross 2,000 years ago, the price that He paid for you to, for you to be right with His Father. It's fascinating. So that would be proof number two, the demonic realm, like, we know who you are, right? Please don't cast us. They knew he had ultimate authority over the demonic realm. Number three is his teaching had all the earmarks of authority. There's just something we know. When we get around a true authority, we know it. Have you ever had that experience? Maybe, you, maybe, you, maybe you're in a business or something and you're like, okay, I think we're pretty good. And relative to the people around us, we really are, we look like the, the, the man or the woman. You know, we look like uh, we're it. And yet somebody comes in from outside and you're like, yeah, I got I to gotta bow the knee in a way. You know, I mean, that person carries real authority. We've all had those experiences. I certainly have. I think about my own preaching. Sometimes I get around preaching and I go, now that's real preaching. What I do, I don't know about that. But that is real authority. Hopefully I teach with authority because I teach from the scripture, but that's real authority. This actually happened uniquely, uh, and I just wanted to give you a quick story, but uh, I, many of you know that I'd been at the Phoenix Open. We do a big outreach over at the Phoenix Open uh, every year, uh, and we have some new guests this morning. And we work with the tour players, and we have several thousand people come, and they listen in on me interviewing the tour players before the week of the Phoenix Open. And, uh, and I had posed the question, well, uh, let's watch it. You want to watch it? Let's watch it. I know, I, I was speaking really quietly that night. I couldn't quite, I couldn't quite. Just going to have a couple of, you know, we were looking for low handicaps. We were calling all the local clubs and seeing what their local lowest handicap at their club was. But uh, to my left, obviously, Stan, and uh, there's a few things that I want to talk about. But the first thing I kind of want to lead off here with is, as I was thinking about it today, I was thinking, what, what would I be interested in in talking to you guys about, just like we were having a cup of coffee, and that usually is the, usually the best way to go about it. So I didn't tell you in the back, but I want you to think about it for a second. I want you to describe for me the most incredible 
golf moment. I'm not talking about family or one of your kids being born or anything like that. Those are all impressive uh, and awesome. But uh, a golf experience that you witnessed, not that you pulled off yourself, but that you witnessed a shot, maybe maybe even a round watching somebody play, something that you were just like, I that is just next level kind of stuff. So anybody got something? I mean, you got you've got a few here, Teddy. But uh, Stan, anything jump to your mind when you're thinking about just one of the greatest things you've witnessed? Well, I was playing in New Orleans at English Turn, and it was late in the career of Jack Nicholas playing the PGA Tour. But he designed the club and he came back and played the tournament and I got paired with him on Sunday. And so what an experience. Some of you guys know who David Cook is. He was my sports psychologist. He said, you always wanted to be prepared for whatever could happen. Right. I called David, I said, we need a new plan. <laughs> But early, early in the front nine, there was this par three that was such a bad design because, I don't know, four or five, it's got this little skinny green. It's 180-some yards. Like, I tried every way in the world I could to hit the ball on the green. Like, there was a bunker out there short, so I could, like, cut a four-iron in and try to run it up on. But it was just a terrible hole until I saw Jack play it. He brings in this five iron out of the sky, drops it in over the front bunkers, checks up, stops short of the hole, and I thought, it's not a bad hole after all. I just didn't have the shot. I mean, there, ha there, there are those moments when you're playing with somebody and you're just going, that is just, this is not something I, is that, what is, uh, somebody said about Tom Lehman. I think even Nicholas said that about Tom Lehman. He plays a game with which I am not familiar. So, which Bobby Jones said about Jack and, you know, so same thing. See, you, you've had those experiences. You're around somebody maybe in your profession or something and you, you work so hard and then you're around somebody and you're just like, that's just next level. I remember playing the San Diego Open one year and I was on the back of the range early and I went back there so nobody could see if I, you know, tin cupped it and shanked it off the tee because I was warming up or something. So it was real cold and it was just me and then one other guy came up and that was, you know, well, we won't, we won't talk about that, but it was a really good left-handed player and uh, Phil Mickelson anyway. So he came and I like the whole range, nobody's back there and he comes up and he, he puts his stuff right next to me. And I'm like, I don't want to have to listen to that, the sound of his compressed irons, you know? I just, I mean, it was like, and I just went out there like this to the first tee, you know? I mean, it's like, I like, that's just, that's a kind of authority in the game that you just is unquestionable. And you know that. We know that. They knew this. Listen to Mark chapter 1, verse 22. The people, they were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as having one with authority and not as the other scribes. This guy is different. This is next level teaching. Everybody knew it. Nobody had to be compelled. Now, there were people that didn't have eyes to see and ears to hear because they were protecting their own domain. That's what's happening in Luke 20. They're protecting their own domain. They're aware that he's miracled Jesus. They're aware that he's fed the thousands. They're aware that people have been raised from the dead. They're aware of all of that. And they're, remember, this is, the, this is the final, we're getting close to the final week here. They're aware of all of that. What authority do you have? They knew exactly what authority he had. But they were protecting their own turf. We still do that. I protect my own turf. I mean, who are you to tell me what to do, Jesus? Now, we wouldn't say that as Christians, but do you pursue his will for your life? Where you go, where you live, what you give, what do you do? How, how do you run your life? Do you consult? Do you, do you lay everything before him and say, Jesus, we're followers of you. We're bought, like Paul said, I've been bought with a price. I'm no longer my own. Do you do that? Or is it, well, is it just every once in a while you show up for something big and, and you, you think you look the part? Uh, this strikes me. I was reading this as well. I love Eugene Peterson. He's writing in his book, Run with the Horses. 
This is a very strange case. It actually happened in 1980 during the Boston Marathon. Listen to this story. Fascinating if you don't know it. The marathon is one of the most strenuous athletic events in all of sport. The Boston Marathon attracts the best runners in the world. The winner is automatically placed among the great athletes of our time. And in the spring of 1980, uh, Rosie Ruiz was the first woman to cross the finish line. Amazing, amazing. She had the laurel wreath placed on her head in a blaze of lights and cheering and everybody. This is awesome. And she was completely unknown in the world of running. Can you imagine? We talk about uh, that's like that's like me winning a PJ Tour event. Anyway, and an incredible, an incredible feat. We don't even know who this person is. Her first race of victory in the prestigious Boston Marathon, and then someone noticed her legs, loose flesh, cellulite. Questions were asked. No one had seen her along the 26.2-mile course. The truth came out. She had jumped into the race on the very last mile. (laughs) Yeah. Now, there was an immediate and widespread interest in, who is this lady, Rosie? Who is this? What's going on here? Why would she do that when it was obviously certain that she would be found out? Athletic performance cannot, cannot be faked. Just can't. But she never admitted her fraud. She repeatedly said that she would run another marathon to validate her ability. Somehow, she never did. (laughs) People interviewed her, searching for a clue to her personality. One interviewer concluded that she really believed that she had run the complete Boston Marathon and won. She was analyzed as a sociopath. She lied convincingly and naturally with no sense of conscience, no sense of reality in terms of right and wrong, acceptable and unacceptable behavior. She appeared bright, normal, intelligent, but there was no moral sense to give coherence to her social actions, none whatsoever. In reading about Rosie, I thought of all the people I know who want to get in on the finish line, but who cleverly arrange not to run the real race. They appear in church on Sunday, wreathed in smiles, entertaining into the, uh, excuse me, uh, inter-race. They appear in church on Sunday, wreathed in smiles, uh, entering into the celebration. But there's no personal life that leads up to it or out from it. Occasionally, they engage in a spectacular act of love and compassion in public. We're impressed, but surprised. They just weren't known for that. But You never know. Better give them the benefit of the doubt, and then it turns out to be a stunt. No personal involvement either precedes or follows the act. They're plausible and convincing, but in the end, they they don't run the race. Believing through the tough times, praying through the lonely, angry, hurt hours, they have no sense of what is real in religion. The proper label for such a person is a religiopath. And then finally, no one becomes human the way Jeremiah was human by Well, posing in a posture of victory, it was his prayers, hidden but persistent, that brought him to the human wholeness and spiritual sensitivity that we want. What we do in secret determines the soundness of who we are in public. Prayer is the secret work that develops a life that is thoroughly authentic and deeply human. Why do you think Jesus, you say, well, he was God. I mean, of course, he's going to teach with authority, but he was also fully man. This hypostatic union is complex. But if you look at the life and the practice of Jesus, he was running the race and he was on a journey that was not going to be impeded by anybody, not even within his own circle. Peter, don't go to the cross. I'll never let this happen. Jesus was unimpeded to the very end and he gave his life. That was his journey. That was his course. Paul would call it the race. I want to finish the race. Look, if you're going to finish the race, if you recognize that you're in the race, if you're on your knees as a person who follows, who loves and follows and goes through the ups and the downs and part of a community, part of a a vibrant, dynamic community, it will become apparent in those around you that what is coming out of your mouth is authoritative and authentic. It was certainly the case with Jesus. You can't just show up in the last half a mile Hey, there may be some unknowing people that put the wreath on you, put the crown on, do a few interviews. But 
my loose flabby legs, uh, give it away. <laughs> see, what they didn't see in Jesus was loose flabby legs, spiritually speaking. They saw authority. They saw authenticity, and they knew it. And that is a beautiful proof of who he was, a beautiful proof. I want to finish this morning with the fourth proof. Um, this is, I think, a powerful one. It's the most powerful proof that we'll ever have for the uh, authority that Jesus possessed, and that is, very simply, his resurrection. Now, you say, well, you know, it's what Christians believe. You can't really believe in that. I don't know if you've ever done any real study, any really an historical review of what many of those who are experts say. I mean, it's going to be hard for them if they are anti-miraculous to ever come down on the side of the miraculous resurre resurrection. But from an historical perspective, in terms of the, those who really study these things, there are some very profound, profound um, cases to be made for the reality, even in just the seen realm of his resurrection. I believe it by faith. I wasn't there. I didn't see a resurrected Jesus. But I cer certainly can't explain the behavior of the disciples. I can't explain the, all the people that saw him. I can't explain the fact that the disciples were all, all but one was willing to go to an untimely death, some crucified, stoned, heads chopped off, all kinds of crazy stuff that would happen to these people who knew that they had seen a resurrected Jesus. That has to grab you. But there's more to it. I'm going to take you on a little bit of a circuitous route as we close this morning. But I want to talk to you again. I want us to be so integrated with the whole message of the Bible, which is beautiful in its Old Testament and New Testament revelation. A little groundwork here. Um, Jesus was not descended from the tribe, the Levitical tribe. In some ways, you would say, what right, as the high priestly class, what right did he have to be teaching on our domain? He was not part of the Levitical tribe. Now, they didn't say that specifically, but that had to be running around in the deep recesses of their mind. What authority do you have? You're not even of the tribe of Levi, who were, who were tasked with the priestly duties. Now, I find that uh, amazing that he need then permission. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis 14, a very strange story among strange stories that we have this morning. We got pigs filled with demons running into the lakes. We've got, you know, crazy uh, wild-eyed people that are possessed of Satan. Uh, we've got all kinds of things going on this morning, and this just adds to the, well, the kind of the strange nature of proof here. Genesis 14, verse 17. Now, this is a recounting Abram coming back, having uh, rescued his nephew Lot from this uh, nefarious, uh, they were kind of pirate kings. And so he's coming back and uh, listen to what happens. He, he defeated them and brought back Lot and, you know, they re really saved him. Genesis 14, verse 17. Then after his return from the defeat of Keterleomer, the kings were, who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, Melchizedek, interesting, king of Salem. King of Salem. Now, Salem would become eventually Jerusalem, Jerusalem, okay? But this is pre-Jerusalem. This is the king of Salem. We don't know almost anything about this Melchizedek because remember, this is Abrahamic. This is 2,000 years before the time of Jesus. This is a good 1,000 years before the time of King David. This is some 500 or so years before the time of Moses. Nothing's established. They don't have the land of Israel is not the land of Israel. It's, it's filled with burying Semitic tribes that are wandering the deserts and battling each other and all these kinds of things are going on. Now Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine and he was, what, a priest of God most high. This is what the Bible says, not a false god. He was a priest of God most high. He was a priest of the, the very God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How did he know this? How did he have this information? We don't know. Melchizedek then blesses him and says, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and evidently, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Okay, so that's the story. Done, right? What did that mean? Where'd that come from? What is that about? Doesn't tell us anything. Just this story. Or does it? 
Is it all leading? Our whole premise of this book is this is a revelation of Jesus from beginning to end. Jesus is in Genesis 1. Jesus is in Revelation 22. It's arcing forward to really talk about the one and sole person who will, well, pay pay the ransom for the redemption of mankind. So now we're we're going to flash forward a good thousand years in time to the psalmist, Psalm 110, Psalm 110. We're going to put this together. Everybody with me? We're doing fine. I'm so early. This is phenomenal. This is great. I uh, even had time to do the pig-oinking stuff. All right, Psalm 110. Are you ready? Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord. What does that mean? The Lord says to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, that's authority. The Lord is saying to His Lord, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Scepter is a position of great authority and kingship and power, authority. Verse 3 says, Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. That day is today. That ruler is Jesus. You know how many people volunteered freely here today? You volunteer with your time, with your funding. You know, we're going to be in a building. People are volunteering freely with their, all their, their assets and their money and their, their time and their energy. They're just volunteering. We're not, nobody's pressing their arm or twisting their arm or saying, they're not, they're not gonna go, you're going to go to hell if you don't come in here. No, no, no. It's a voluntary thing. Something has changed in people's hearts. They want to be part of what God is doing. That's what the psalmist is seeing. That day is coming. People are going to be volunteering freely. Your people will volunteer and they'll be in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. That holy array is us being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is what the psalmist is saying. Verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. Speaking of whoever this expected one is, this one with a scepter, and it says, You are a priest forever whoever this expected one is, according to what? The order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek wasn't of the tribe of Levi. There was no tribal affiliation yet. This is hundreds of years before the sons of Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and then the 12 tribes, and then years of slavery, and finally this task given to the Levitical tribe. This is well in advance of that. And what the psalmist is seeing is that there's going to be someone that's going to show up that's going to have all authority, all dominion, and all power, and he's going to be a priest just like, well, from the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Well, he didn't come to shatter kings when he came the first time. He came to die for nefarious kings. But when he comes back, he'll set all things right. And that's going to be a day of vengeance. And that's what we saw also in Isaiah 35. He will judge among the nations. It's not just about Israel and the Jewish people. He's going to judge among all nations. And He will fill them with corpses. And He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, He will lift up His head. A picture of even Gideon's. It's a whole other story. So this exalted figure, who is it? That David's seen, he, he rules uh, as a forever priest. Uh, priest? What are you talking about? How, how is he teaching in the temple? Uh, well, he needs no human to grant him the authority. because. And we'll close with this. Listen to what Paul says. I, I hope you're following. I know this is a little bit of work here this morning, but we get the picture. What authority? We're asking for proof. What does Jesus prove? And we're going back to the Old Testament, codified well in advance of the time of Jesus, to make sure that we understand that Jesus was walking out the journey that God the Father had prescribed for him before the foundations of the earth. And in this case, he had every right to be in the temple because this order of Melchizedek gave him every authority that he needed. 
even though. Now, and so now watch the Apostle Paul dance around here a little bit. It's powerful. Hebrews chapter 7, this is talking about Jesus as our high priest. What power does Jesus have? Because this is, I get this all the time. I watch these YouTube and say, I, why in the world would you believe in some religion that requires a father to murder their own son? That in of itself disqualifies me from ever thinking seriously about Christianity. Who would believe in a God that wants to sacrifice his own son? That's barbaric. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. I'm never going to believe in that garbage. I get that. I hear that all the time. Well, you just don't understand how far separated we are. What you're asking, if you want no place of atonement, if you want no justification before God, what you're saying is, if you actually do believe in God, is that you're saying and understand how far separated we are, then God just should wipe this planet out and start all over or not try this human experiment ever again. That's what you're saying if you understand how different and other than, that's what holiness means, other than God is from our own nature. So we need a high priest. We need somebody to intercede. We need a high priest to go in and say, it's going to be okay. With, it's going to be okay for Blair. It's going to be okay for Lauren. It's going to be okay for, you know, Bob. It's going to be, it's going to be okay. I, I, I'm going to pay the price for you. As a high priest, as, an, as a lamb, and then I'm going to come back as a king. Even though I was a king while I was here, there's another dimension, but I'm going to come back as a conquering king. Listen to what Paul then said. If you understand that, this is why you understand Hebrews 7, verse 15. And this is clearer still, the apostle Paul says, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of the law of physical requirement, meaning he's from the tribe of Levi, he couldn't be. He had to be the high priest through Melchizedek, but he had to come through the tribe of Judah because the Bible says the king is going to come through the tribe of Judah. It couldn't be. How's he going to be both? How's he going to be our high priest? That's only the, the, the temple, those, those who control the temple. How's he going to be both? Paul's saying it. He said he didn't do it according to law of physical requirement, being a, a Levite, but according, how did he prove himself as being from the order of Melchizedek? According to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And he quotes, and he goes back and quotes Psalm 110. Now, what does that mean? If you got lost, please don't, because this is huge. The proof that Jesus has of his ultimate authority to trump anybody who might be in and around the temple, high priest or otherwise, the proof that he had the authority to teach and preach the gospel in the temple, well, he was raised from the dead. His indestructible life had to be there. Why? Because Psalm 110 said, no, this is not just going to be a high priest. It's going to be a what? It's going to be a high priest forever. That's going to require resurrected Jesus, a forever Jesus. So, Paul, it's Paul's arguing, whether you're aware of it or not. He's saying this is the last high priest we'll ever need. We don't need another high priest. We don't need more blood sacrifices. That's why Jesus on the cross, he said, it's finished. I don't need to die again. What am I going to die over and over again? One time, high priest. But what's going to prove that he's the ultimate high priest forever? Well, he had to have an indestructible life. Now, is that proof enough for you? to give your life to Jesus. I'm suggesting it should be. Do your work, dig in, count the costs, try to understand what it means to be a Christian. Don't be a rosy Ruiz and just show up at the finish line. Imagine that you won the Boston Marathon. Give your life wherever you are. Look, if you've never entered the kingdom, you can do that. Say, I believe upon you, Jesus. I give my life to you. You can start that journey today. Or... Maybe you've just kind of around the fringes and kind of thinking and bobbing and weaving a little bit with God in your mind. Don't do that. Follow him. Be full in. Be all in. Be a Jesus person openly. Proclaim it. Be baptized. Be public. Be out there. And then get about walking your journey, the highway of holiness, where, well, vicious beasts can't go up there anymore. 
Now, what does that mean? It means he's going to take your instinctual, animalistic, passion-driven lifestyle and turn it and make you someone who now cares about the people still swimming in the sea of perceived autonomy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, many of us here, you're the name, you're the only name. You have all authority. You created everything. What do you mean do you have authority to be here? Just don't understand why you haven't just started over and did a big do-over with planet Earth like you did during the time of Noah. Why? Well, because you said you wouldn't. You had a plan that was intractable. There's no way, no way this thing was going to be stopped because you were going to do it. You were going to put your spirit in men and women and you were going to give them a new heart. You're going to put them up. You're going to take them out of living among the tombs and spiritually speaking, being naked, unclothed. You're going to put them in holy array and put them up on the highway of holiness. Lord, that was always your plan. You are ultimate high priest. If there's anybody here or in the sound of my voice and you said, look, I, I want to follow Jesus. I, I don't understand everything, but I have enough faith this morning. I, I'm going to ask, Lord, I recognize today your authority. And just tell him you want to follow him. And that you re realize your deficit and how far you are from his father. And then he'll invite you into the kingdom. And you can be baptized and filled with the Spirit, discipled and cared for and, well, bandaged up and some clothes Jesus will put on you, His own righteousness. And you'll have a home, not just a church home, but a collective global home of people who love Him and you'll be part of a family as well. Thank you for the privilege of that simple prayer and that do-over, Lord. In Jesus' name. Thank you.